Good morning, church. It's a special Sabbath to be here in God's house. Amen? Amen. So thankful for God's goodness. And um, it's a special Sabbath for me also because my parents are here. And I'm glad that they can, they can join uh, us today as we worship God and as we study His Word. As was mentioned earlier, we're beginning a series on the Word of God. <clears throat> And uh, we're going to be looking in this series, first of all, at a number of facts regarding the history of God's Word. Uh, Probably most of you know that the Bible has its share of critics, right? There are those who would like to find fault or perhaps find reasons to disbelieve the Word of God. And uh, we're wanting to look in, in this series at some of those criticisms particularly over the last 100, 150 years, which have been lodged against the Scriptures, and how many of them have already been answered. Um, Probably most of you are aware that the Bible is one of the most widely read books in all the world, but compared to the number of books that are printed, it's probably one of the least read bestsellers. The Bible's been translated into more than 1,700 languages. And uh, so in that sense, it's one of the most widely translated books, probably the most widely translated books, there's very little, it's very difficult to to put a handle on how many Bibles are actually produced or bought each year. But in the United States alone, in some years, up to 50 million copies of the Bible are printed. That's a lot of Bibles, isn't it? When you talk about bestsellers, it's usually 100,000, some depends on which list, 10,000, which category. But the Bible, up to 50 million copies a year are printed and, and, and distributed. Now, the Bible is written. We know it's a, it's a collection of books, not just one book as we Christians today would, would view it. It was a collection of books written by 40 writers, and they wrote 66 different books. It wasn't all written at once. In fact, it was written over a period of time spanning more than 1,600 years. And if you have your, your uh, bulletin insert, I... I see some of you are following along and writing down some of these facts. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah or the Pentateuch. That's Torah, which is spelled T-O-R-A-H. The Torah, we believe, was written by Moses. And although we're going to talk some about some of the, the criticisms that by the, the, the scholars that would say otherwise, um, we as Seventh-day Adventists believe the, Bible, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, was written, in fact, by Moses. And Moses had a very interesting life story. As you know, he was born as a slave child. He was dedicated to God, much like Camilo was was dedicated to God today. He was dedicated to be raised as uh, a God-fearing child. He was um, then uh, raised or adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, you remember? And uh, ended up being educated in all the arts and sciences and and war tactics of Egypt. And uh, then after his mistake of trying to free God on his own terms, we often try to help God out, don't we? After his mistake, he ended up being uh, exiled, self-exiled, I guess, for to save his life into the desert where he tended sheep. Dwight Moody once said that the first 40 years of Moses' life, he was becoming a somebody. The second 40 years of his life, Moses was becoming a nobody. And the third 40 years of his life, Moses was demonstrating what God can do with a somebody who becomes a nobody. And um, I like that perspective because 
there tending sheep where Moses could have thought there was nothing really influential that he was doing. We believe that he wrote at least Genesis and um, perhaps the book of, of uh, Job as he was uh, there in the desert just doing a very menial or servile task. But um, how do we get the Bible? Moses was a long time ago. So really quickly, we don't have much time this morning, so I want to move very briefly. Um, the, the, when Jer- Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman emperor, the Roman government thought that that was the end of the Jewish faith. Their sanctuary was in ruins. Their capital city was devastated. The people were exiled. The center of the Jewish faith moved into Galilee, into Tiberias, actually, where um, many of the scholars took up residence. And um, this, this center, Tiberias, as well as uh, there was a center in Iraq, in what we call Babylonia, and there was also, um, there was also one other uh, center in Caesarea, where the Jewish scholars congregated. And these schools, as it were, produced scholars which became known as the Masoretes. And the Masoretes were dedicated to the task of protecting the, the Hebrew scriptures. That was what we call the Old Testament, right? These Masoretes studied and they uh, commented upon the writings of the Old Testament. These commentaries became known as the Mishnah, and the Gomorrah combined to make the Talmud, and these are these today are sacred writings in the Hebrew in the Jewish faith, not so much in the Christian faith, because these are commentaries on the Old Testament. But the Masoretes studied the Old Testament scriptures. They had an unfortunate practice. When a copy of the scriptures became old and worn out, they thought that it was the the respectful thing to do to destroy it. And they would either burn it or they would bury it so that it would not be in a tattered shape. And so when we come down to the 20th century, as uh, we're excavating and archaeologists are digging in the Holy Land, we're looking for ancient manuscripts. And the latest manuscripts we could find were from about the year 8900. That's a thousand years, nearly a thousand years after the time of Christ, 900 years after the time of Christ. So all of the manuscripts from before the time of Christ had been destroyed as far as we know. So that gave a lot of room for the critics to jump in. And they said, look, you Christians as well as the Jews, you believe a Bible that you have no record of existence of before 8900. I mean, we had older copies of the New Testament than we had of the Old Testament. And so they assumed, even though the Masoretes were very particular about their copying, even though the Masoretes, they would, they would copy a page and they would count until they found the middle letter in the page, count forwards and backwards, and then they would count the same on the copy, and they would make sure that, well, if they had, if they had missed a letter, they'd have had to have added a letter too, right? In order to come out with the same number, they're very particular. But the critics said, look, it's impossible. You can't have a manuscript hand-copied for 900 years without having terrible errors, a lot of mistakes. And so the critics would say that the Old Testament was not reliable. It couldn't be trusted. In fact, something would take place in in the 1940s which would change that argument. It would silence that argument forever. I wish I could tell you about it, but we'll have to tell you about that next week as we look more at the history of the Old Testament. 
And um, we're going to move on in our sermon this morning and look at the inevitability of the Word. The reason it's important for us to solidify in our minds that God's Word is reliable is because God's Word is the only real guide for human living that doesn't change. It's the only way that shows us, it's the only book that shows us where we came from and where we're going. It's the only roadmap for our human existence. Oh, many other philosophies, many other theories have been tried. There's a way that seems right unto a man, to a woman, right? But the Bible says the ends thereof are the ways of death. And the Bible is our sure guide for human living. But there's a problem. There's a problem that's probably bigger today than the problems of the critics and the atheists and the agnostics. There's a problem that we as Christians have. Sometimes we say we believe the Bible, we say we read the Bible, but we don't actually live the Bible. Sometimes we have a denial of the word which isn't like that of the critics of the scriptures. We don't say the Bible isn't inspired. We just pretend we can't quite understand what it says when it uh, speaks to us something that we don't like to hear. So today we're going to be looking at something called the inevitability of the word, and we're going to be looking at the story in, found in Numbers chapter 22. And it's the story of Balaam. And I would invite you just to bow your heads with me for an additional word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, today we want to commit ourselves to knowing more about you and your word. And as we look at this story this morning, I just pray that your spirit and your presence be with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 22. We're going to be looking at the story not of a critic of the true faith, but as the story of a man who was, in fact, a verified prophet of the true faith. This was a man who was not a bad man, much like we Today, living in 2010, we're church-going, Bible-believing, God-worshipping Christians, right? The Bible says in Numbers chapter 22, the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho. Now Balak, the king of the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Ammonites. And this king of Moab, he he became very fearful because he saw how the Amorites had been destroyed by this nomadic people that was wandering through the desert. And so he said, I need to find something that will give me as a king the the upper hand to be able to fight off these Israelites when they come into my territory. And so he thought of the those who might have connection with the gods. And this is a real testimony to Balaam's life previous to this time. Because when Balak the king wanted to find someone who was in in touch with the supernatural. Who did he think of? He thought of Balaam, right? Balaam must have been known as a person who was close to God. God must have answered Balaam's prayers previously. Wouldn't that be assumed? Balaam must have been a good man. And the Bible calls him a prophet. And so he went and he sent messengers to Balaam. And uh, these elders of uh, Midian uh, were sent to Balaam. And he says in verse 5, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. That may have been a little bit of an exaggeration, but there was a lot of them. And they have now come against me. Come now, verse 6, it says, Therefore, I pray thee, curse this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure, I will prevail. 
that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom thou blessest, blessest is blessed and he whom thou cursest is cursed. Balak knew about Balaam, right? Balak knew that Balaam was able to curse or to bless and that would be effectual, effective. And so when Balaam heard this invitation from the princes of Midian, he did the right thing. Another good indication to us that Balaam was a good man. Amen. The Bible says in verse eight, he said to these princes, these elders, lodge here this night and I will bring you word again as the Lord will speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. That was a good, wise answer. Wouldn't you agree? When you don't know what to do, when you're faced with a decision, you have the, we have the privilege of presenting the matter before God. Amen. And God is a wonderful God. He hears the prayers of those who really want to know his will. And um, he, we may not be prophets as Balaam was. We may not have special um, divine revelations. But we don't need that. You know, God speaks to us today just as surely as he spoke to Balaam, doesn't, didn't, doesn't he? And he often speaks to us through his word as we're willing. You know, sometimes we pray, Lord, show me your will. But then we don't spend time in his word. And um, God wants to show us his will today. If we're wanting it, he will show us. It's a wonderful, wonderful privilege we have as Christians. And so God did answer Balaam's prayer. In fact, it says in verse 9, God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, and he repeated the speech which he had gotten from Balak. There's this people that would cover the whole face of the earth, right? And come and come and curse them so that I can drive them out, so that I can be able to prevail before them. Now, God gave Balaam one of those unequivocal, clear answers. I love this text in verse 12. There's no ands, ifs, buts, maybes. It's, it's, not, it's not at all uh, questionable what God's will is for Balaam at this point. It says in verse 12, God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people. Now, that's clear enough, isn't it? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse them. For they are, what does he say? They're blessed. So God went one step further. He did not just tell Balaam what to do or what not to do. He went one step further in telling Balaam, don't do it because. Now, God doesn't always have to do that, does he? You know, like uh, sometimes parents, when their children are small and they're not perhaps able to understand everything quite yet, sometimes you just have to tell them when they keep asking why, right? Because I said so. You can't understand everything. You have to trust me, right? And as Christians, we ought to trust God, don't you think? God's saying so ought to be enough. But God is good, so good, in fact, that he often tells us why. Isn't that a, isn't that a blessing? And here God tells not, Balaam not only what to do or what not to do, but he also told him why. You cannot curse these people because they are blessed. And so we find here that um, God could not, uh, God told Balaam he could not go with the princes and curse Israel. And um, the Bible says in verse 13 that Balaam rose up in the morning and he said unto the princes of Balak, get you into your land, get out of here, go home. For the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. Now, just listen to the way 
Balaam couches this response to the princes. What does he say? Whose fault is it? Who does he blame for not being able to go? The Lord refuses. He places God in sort of a, 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 a pejorative light, doesn't he? A negative context. God, as if God was some stubborn God that simply refused to give Balaam the opportunity to do what he wanted to do. Now, did Balaam here explain to, Israel, uh, to the princes why he couldn't go? He didn't, did he? He just said, God refuses to give me permission. It reminds me of when I was a little boy. Um, my mother might have said, you know, you can go, you can go and play with the neighbors when you finish your homework or when you finish your chores, whatever it may have been. Do mothers say things like that? It's a way of teaching responsibility, right? I suppose. And um, as children, we sometimes, if it goes in one ear and out the other, you know, we still don't want to do our chores, don't want to do our homework. And um, the neighbor kids come and play with, come to play with me, and what would I say? Would I say my homework isn't done, I can't play with you? No. Or would I say, my mom won't let me play with you? That's human nature. It's human nature. And that's what Balaam does. Balaam says, my God refuses to let me go. There was a good reason. They were blessed people. They couldn't be cursed. It would be futile to try. But Balaam here is exhibiting human nature. You know, prophets are human too. And here we start to see the first clue that something may have been wrong in the heart of Balaam. Perhaps he was resistant to God's will. Perhaps when he saw the gifts, the offering that these uh, princes brought, the payment he thought, I could really use that. You know, I've spent all this time as a poor prophet. I'm doing God's work. I could, I could donate it to a good charity, a good cause. If I could only have that new car or that later model or those new clothes or whatever it is, human nature was the same then as it is today, right? And so when, when Balaam saw these gifts, or perhaps maybe it was not so much the money, it was the pride of being invited by the king to do a special task to be especially honored. I don't know what it was, but you understand, Balaam was like you and me, right? He was, a, he was a human being, and he had the same selfish desires. And we start to see here the indication that something's going wrong in Balaam's life. Balaam is not happy with God's judgment. And Balaam wants to do his own thing. He wants to follow his own way. And so we see that Balaam didn't tell the truth, and so something happened. The princes came back. Remember, they, if you, we won't take the time to read the story here, but you can read these next few verses. And the Bible says that when Balak saw that Balaam wouldn't come and curse Israel, he thought, well, I just didn't offer him enough. The man's negotiating. And so he sent more esteemed, more important, maybe even royalty back to talk to Balaam, to offer him more money. Um, you know, that, that new chariot with more options, more wardrobes. I don't know, but greater gifts, the Bible says. So let's pick up the story here in verse 18. By the way, they also offered him great honor and promotions. This is Numbers 22 and verse 18. The Bible says, Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, 
If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. That's a good answer, isn't it? Powerful. I mean, at this point, I'm saying amen. Yes, go Balaam. Tell it like it is. I can't do but what God tells me to do. The right answer. I mean, Balaam, you, you get the, the idea of Balaam being a man who knew what was right, right? He really had an understanding of what was going on here, but there was something in his heart that didn't like what was God's will. Because the next verse, verse 19, there's this but injected. Balaam says, verse 19, Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Huh. Now, Balaam wasn't like those heathen that didn't believe in the word of God. You understand. But Balaam was like a lot of Christians that didn't like the word of God. Are you following? And because he didn't like what God had said, God had said it very unequivocally. God had said it very clearly. There wasn't much room for dancing around the facts. Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse them, for they are blessed. And even though this had been very clear, Balaam here says, let's stay another night and see if God will tell me something more. Let's see if God changed his mind. So as Christians, we say, I'm still studying when we already know very clearly what God's will is. Oh, we're not denying the word of God. You see, Balaam is not here in disobedience of God's word, is he? But he started down a pathway that would lead to denial of God's word. And I think I skipped over that in your notes. If you were trying to take notes, I was trying to save time. Just before the three invitations on the first page, this is the point you want to write down there. Denial of God's word is progressive. We're going to see that in the story of Balaam. We're going to see that in the story we look at next week as well. The relevance of the word. But today we see that as Balaam began, he was not openly saying, I don't believe God's word. He just didn't like it. He wished it would change. He was hoping it would change. And he'd pretend not to be able to understand it. And here he tells the, the uh, princes, stay here tonight and I will tell you if God tells me something else. <clears throat> now God is a merciful God, amen? Don't you love the God we serve? Isn't he so patient with us? I'm so thankful that God is so eternally patient with each one of us. And um, the Bible says in verse 20 that God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. Now the fact is that God here gives Balaam permission. He gives him permission that if the men who are with him should call him again in the morning then he could go with them. But he would only be able to say and do what God put in his mind, in his heart, in his mouth to say and do, right? Now, as I read this story, the Bible isn't very clear that these men came and got him in the morning or not. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that they may not have. They may have said, this man Balaam, he's not going to come with us. And they may have just been ready to take off on their own. The Bible does say that Balaam went with them, but the Bible also says that God was displeased because he went. It doesn't make a lot of sense for me that God would be displeased when Balaam did what he gave him permission to do. But God sometimes does, allow, does answer our prayers the way we want them. 
not because they are for our best good, but because he realizes that our stubborn hearts might not learn any other way. So at any, way, and at any rate, there are several things we do know. He was supposed to get a third invitation. It's not clear if he did or not. I would guess he didn't. But um, we do know that he went, which was what he wanted to do, right? Is that pretty clear as we see the text so far? He wanted to go, and he went. We also know that it was displeasing to God. It was his way, not God's way, that Balaam was following. Now we see these three wake-up calls, we might say, as God was uh, trying to get intentionally into Balaam's mind, into his consciousness. In chapter 22, again, in verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass or his donkey and his two servants were with him and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field and Balaam began beating his donkey and turned her into the way you get the picture here we generally think of our guardian angels as being for our own safekeeping and best interest right here was an angel who was not out to protect Balaam as he made his way towards the land of the Midianites, but he was out to stop him. Maybe it would have been a protection. Maybe this attempt to make things go wrong in Balaam's life was an attempt to get through to Balaam. What are you doing? Where are you going? I mean... You see here Balaam beginning to exhibit some characteristics which are not totally like we would consider a child of God, right? I mean, he's not, he's supposed to be a prophet of God. He's convinced himself probably in his own mind that he's following God's will. God said, if they come and get me, I'm gonna, I can go with them. So I'm going with them. He's convinced himself that everything's A-OK. He's a Christian. I mean, I don't think he had somehow avowed the gods of the Midianites by now. He's still believing the true God, right? But how's he behaving? When, his donk, when, when something goes wrong, how does he respond? He's angry. He's angry. Now, things will go wrong, my friends, right? Things go wrong. Because things go wrong doesn't necessarily mean that God's blessing is not with us. Sometimes trials are sent as wake-up calls, and it's not a bad idea to examine our lives and see, hey, are these things happening so that God can get a hold of me? Or are these things happening simply to refine my character, and we need to get closer to Jesus? But here, Balaam, Balaam, when things went wrong, he reacted in a way that should have told him definitively that something was wrong with his spirit. You cannot be a Christian following God, trusting Him, believing that He's guiding you, and yet become angry when things don't go your way. Are you with me? And so when things don't go right, maybe it's not so much, maybe it's not so important that we examine our life to see why they went wrong. Maybe it's more important we examine our life to see how we respond. 
how we respond. And at first, Balaam's response may not have been that egregious, right? It may not have been that dramatically unchristian. I mean, people beat their donkeys. You get the picture of him hitting his donkey and then forcefully pulling her back into the road. The Bible says in verse 23, verse 24, the angel of the Lord stood on a path of the vineyards, a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot. That'd be between the donkey and the wall. Not an enjoyable experience. And the Bible says he smote her or he beat her again. Somehow there was enough room for this donkey to squeeze by the angel. And the angel goes a little further along the pathway. And the Bible says in verse 26, the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he started to beat his donkey with his rod. There was no society for the prevention of cruelty to animals in those days. But someone who was a worshiper of the true God should have known better than to be beating on a dumb animal with a rod, right? We know that this was not just a cool-headed, strategic donkey training practice of Balaam from what happened next. We know that Balaam was actually very angry and very hot-headed and very much not exhibiting the spirit of a Christian. Because the Bible says in verse 28, as Balaam is beating his donkey with his rod, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said unto Balaam, what have I done unto you that you have smitten me these three times? Now, let me ask you a question. If your donkey began talking to you, do you think by that time you might say, hey, this is meant to be a wake-up call? You think you might say something unusual is going on here? My donkey's talking. In simple language, I can understand. I mean, this is phenomenal. I would love to have a video of this donkey talking. I doubt it was like an animation. I mean, the donkey was talking. And Balaam, instead of saying, hey, wait a minute, something, something's going on here. I need to stop and consider my ways. Balaam, in his anger, answers the donkey. Now you see how far Balaam has gone. We laugh, and it's funny, but this is serious business, guys. This is what sin does. Sin makes you believe you're doing the right thing. Sin makes you insensible to the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, even if a donkey starts talking to you. Balaam didn't start off that way, but denial of God's word is what? 
It's progressive. And now he's arguing with his donkey and he says in verse 29, because you have mocked me these three times, because you have mocked me, I would there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. Little did Balaam know that he wouldn't have had a chance to kill the donkey. Because someone was looking out for that donkey. The donkey continues on. The donkey says to Balaam, verse 30, Am I not your donkey upon which you have ridden ever since I was yours unto this day? Did I ever do this like, like this unto you? And he said, No. You're talking about a genuine conversation going on here between Balaam and his donkey. And at that time, God realized the talking donkey wasn't going to do the trick. God loves us even when we're in rebellion against him. Can you say amen? amen? God sent an angel. God sent problems into Balaam's life. He tried over and over to get through to Balaam. Stop your hard-headed resistance just because of what you want. And finally he sent a donkey to talk. And it didn't work. The conversation just continued. And so the Lord opened the angels, uh, the, uh, Balaam's eyes. It says in verse 32, verse 31, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, his sword drawn, ready for action. And he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. Now God had Balaam's attention. And the angel says to Balaam, words that should have sent ice cubes running through his bloodstream. Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Behold, I went out before to withstand you because your way is perverse before me. And the donkey saw me and turned from me these three times. If she had not turned from me, surely now I also I had slain thee. And saved her alive. Now you talk about a wake-up call. That should have put the fear of God into the prophet Balaam. Wouldn't you agree? Sometimes I wish, you know, God, if I'm headed down a path like this, I hope you'll send a wake-up call to me too. And then I realize this story's here in the Scriptures not for our idle entertainment but for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come, right? God doesn't always send talking donkeys today because we have record of them. We can look at their lives. We can see this is what happens when I resist the Word of God. Not starting an outward rebellion but ending an open rebellion. God does still send wake-up calls. I praise God for that. I praise God for that. But often, He invites us to look at the wake-up calls He sent in the past. To be profited by them. The Bible says here, Balaam is prostrated before the angel. The angel says, you're lucky to be alive, Balaam. If it weren't for your donkey who you've, you're angry at and you're beating, I would have killed you and she would have been grazing in some pasture the rest of her days enjoying a good life. And Balaam 
says this, verse 34, I have sinned. Sometimes, where our, even our hard hearts are able to come to the point where we realize we've made the wrong decisions, right? And here he says, I've sinned. And he says, for I knew not that you stood in the way against me. How does Balaam say that he has sinned? Was his sin in going after the princes? He's not, he's not acknowledging that sin. Look carefully. He's acknowledging the sin of beating his donkey. Right? He has not yet given up. He has not yet let his heart relax its death grip on his coveted prize of going with the princes and cursing Israel. And so the Bible says, Balaam continued, he said, I have sinned in that I didn't know you were the cause of my donkey's behavior. It says, and look at the, the last part of verse 34. This to me is the most amazing part of the whole story. Just keep in your mind what Balaam just went through. The three wake-up calls, an angel, sword drawn. You're lucky to be alive. I would have taken your head off. And he says here, now, he says, last part, now therefore, if it displease you, I will get me back again. What does Balaam say? If. If. What's this sword? What's the crushed foot? If it displease you. I've just told you, Balaam, your way is perverse before me. I wasn't talking about beating the donkey. The Bible says, verse 35, The angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto you, that thou shalt speak. And so Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Balaam finally got what he was looking for. God gave him permission. But friends, we have the ability of hindsight to look into Balaam's life, what he didn't know at the time. In hindsight, we can look at Balaam's life and we can see that Balaam would have been a lot better off if God hadn't given him what he asked for. If Balaam had listened more carefully and recognized that it wasn't God's will for him to go and curse Israel, Balaam would have been spared an awful lot of heartache and eventually the loss, the eternal loss of his soul. The prophet of God was happy because now he had his way. And the Bible says that he went with Balak and we're going to be very very quickly here. We're going to look. We won't read the verses, all of them, but he ended up having three embarrassments. First, on the high places of Baal, and I think I put the verse there in your... Yes, Numbers 23, 7 through 11. Basically, Balaam said to Balak, I'm here now, I'm going to curse Israel, so I, what I need you to do, I need you to arrange a sacrifice to the God of heaven. This was something like the sacrifices that had been handed on. This was 
um, not a particular Jewish sacrifice given to the sanctuary, but, you know, ever since their uh, ejection from the Garden of Eden, God's people had been offering sacrifices. Abraham, remember, wherever he went, he built an altar and there worshipped God. Noah, as soon as the flood was over, he built an altar. And so the true worship of God had been associated with some of these ceremonies. And here Balaam tells the king, build an altar, not just build an altar, build seven altars. And on these seven altars, offer seven bullocks and seven rams. And so Balak, the king, he would do anything to get Balaam's curse. And so he built seven altars. He offered as sacrifices seven bullocks and seven rams. And after these offerings were ascending to God, Balaam went and he opened his mouth and he says some beautiful things. He says, first of all, in uh, let's just read a couple verses. Verse 8, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and number the, of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Poetic words of beautiful blessing for God's people. You see, Balaam was learning something. Just because we don't like God's word doesn't mean we can change it. What did I say? Just because we don't like God's word doesn't mean we can change it. Oh, our, our little wills, we think, are so strong and so powerful. And if we just we grit our teeth and we, we grimace and we, 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 we convince ourselves and we rationalize and convince people around us, surely God will change his mind. And that's what Balaam has done. Everyone's gone along now. There's nobody. None of his peers are saying no. But God still hasn't changed, has he? And God, just like he promised, he gave a blessing to Israel. Didn't make Balak's day. Balak was not happy. But Balaam said, look, let me try again. And so from there they went to the top of Pisgah. The top of Pisgah, again overlooking the encampment of Israel. And we see that in verses 18 through 25. We'll just read there our scripture. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and he shall not do it? Hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Well, my friends, I don't know God's word, God's will for each one of you. But I know one thing. God's word doesn't change. And I know I found in my own life, my own experience, the Word of God is inevitable. I've fought it so many times. I'm the exception. I'm the one who this doesn't apply to. But God's Word is inevitable. It always comes to pass, just as He said. That's the way God is. God is not of man. We're not talking about some people's will here. We're talking about the will of the sovereign God. And finally, we have the top of Mount Peor. Numbers 24, verses 3 through 10. Again, after this, ble- after this blessing, Balaam said, let me try again. You, you see how desperate the man is? I mean, he will not stop at anything in order to curse 
Israel to get what he wants. And so the Bible says that, again, seven altars, seven oxen, seven ram. This is getting expensive, isn't it? And after, again, Balaam opens his mouth and these incredible platitudes issue forth, blessing the children of Israel above all blessings, all nations, amazing promises, even promising the the destroyer of the Gentiles or of the, uh, the, the, the wicked. Jesus is prophesied by Balaam here. The Bible says, you can read it yourself, that after this third blessing that Balaam issues forth, Balak is so angry that he's hitting his hands together, which usually means what? You're about to do physical damage to somebody. I mean, Balak the king was so angry, he was literally punching his hands together. And it was only then that Balaam said, I think I better get out of here. And he, with his tail between his legs, he headed back to his home, defeated. Balaam had learned that the word of God is inevitable. No matter what we may do to try to change it, it remains the same. Now, this isn't the end of Balaam's story. Very quickly, we skip down to Numbers chapter 31. In fact, Balaam went home and he found a way. He finally thought of a way that he could curse Israel. He tempted Israel. He gave the king an idea. We can't curse them because they're blessed. They're blessed because they're obeying God. If you just get some of those Midianitish women to corrupt their purity, their morals, their ethics, to have them live questionable lives, the blessing of God will depart from them and they'll be cursed. So that happened. We won't take a look at the whole story here. But that happened and a war broke out. There were many who died among the camp of Israel. Punishment for their sins. We see here in Numbers 31, in verse 8, says, they slew the kings of Midian besides the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Recham and Zur and Hur and Reba, five kings of Midian, Midian, Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. Balaam died, the prophet of God, who started off just not actually openly denying the word of God, simply saying, I don't quite like what it says. Let me see if I can understand something different. You see how the denial of God's word is progressive? I want to end on a positive note, though, because while we, we, we can recognize in Balaam's life, and Balaam's life is here for a warning for us, isn't it? It's a warning for me. It's a warning for me. The word of God is inevitable in the judgment against obedi- disobedience. But the word of God is also inevitable when it comes to the promises of God's word. The promises of obedience. If we confess him, he will confess us, the Bible says. He says he's able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. The word of God is inevitable. It will be fulfilled, not only the judgments against sin and rebellion, but the blessings that he promises for obedience and submission. And that's good news, isn't it? The inevitability of God's word is not just a pejorative Context. It's not just something that's bad news for us. It's good news for us. 
We can trust God's word, God's promises. God's word is inevitable. God's word never fails. It always will come about just as he promises. I don't know about you, but today I want to say I'm thankful for God's word. I'm thankful even for the inevitability of God's word. I'm thankful for the story of Balaam so that I don't have to repeat his mistakes. The denial of God's word is progressive. And what's important for me today is not to see if I'm an atheist or agnostic or maybe fighting against God's people or, you know, leading an open life of sin. What's important for me today is to ask myself the question, am I willing to joyfully submit to the will of God? even when it crosses my own desires, my own agenda. The Bible speaks, Paul speaks to the Thessalonians. He talks about those who received not the love of the truth, they might be saved. And that's what I think we need. We need today to have a love for the truth that says, look, even if it's not what I want, God, give me a love for your will that I might joyfully surrender to that will. And then the inevitability of your word will not be an enemy against me. It will be a great assurance of victory and salvation for me. Is that your desire this morning? You want to say that prayer? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, today we thank you for your word. In the few minutes we've had today, we've looked more closely at the life of a man who was a good man. But like many good people who in the end will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do good things? Balaam came to a bad end. Lord, we don't want to end up where Balaam ended up. We don't want to end up fighting your word. We started out seeking your will. So, Father, when you reveal your will to us, give us the hearts of children the hearts that are willing to trust and obey, whether we understand the reason or not, and especially whether it's our own carnal wish or not. Lord, I confess this morning that the only way you're going to save me with my stubborn heart is working a miracle in my life. And I want that miracle. Today, I believe there are others here who want it as well. You know each heart. You know each decision. Give us a love of the truth that we might be saved, that we might show others what a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord, that we might rejoice in the inevitability of the fulfillment of your promises, knowing that they are all yea and amen for us in Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen.